Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I have returning guest. Marty Kendall, creator of Nutrient Optimizer, back on to talk micronutrients and satiety. So I originally had Marty on for episode 120 to talk more broadly on his work in creating the Nutrient Optimizer and helping people understand the importance of micronutrients when it comes to their diet and it was such a fabulous conversation that we then we met up at low carb Denver and I got to know Marty a bit more and he's such a wealth of information and so this time around on the podcast on the back of my conversation with Dr. Ted Naiman which we spoke about satiety Marty and I discussed the important role that micronutrients have on feeling satisfied and satiety in the diet we discuss Marty's data so if you remember he's an engineer and just an absolute data nerd in a good way which helped figure out factors that help people lose weight and keep it off whether or not you're on a low carb diet or a low fat diet the important role of fiber for keeping calories lower by a substantial amount and Marty's got some great research and great data points on this and has analyzed both data sets from broad sort of population-based studies, but also has several thousand sort of data points of his own from people who go through his course. We discussed the types of foods to focus on that provide nutrients and satiety, regardless of dietary leaning. And actually, we discuss so much more than this because Marty is such an enthusiast in this space, so easy to talk to, so smart about the topic that really we just went through a range of topics and I think you're really going to love it. For those of you who missed the first episode where Marty came on, that's episode number 120 and I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Marty Kendall is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. Marty's interest in nutrition began 18 years ago to help his wife Monica better control her type 1 diabetes and we discussed that in that earlier interview. Since then, he has developed a systemized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals, contexts, and preferences. Over the past five years, Marty's shared his research over at OptimizingNutrition.com. Honestly, guys, if you have not been to that website, absolutely um, go there and just have a look at the amazing amount of free resources that Marty provides to help you better understand your diet and the approach that you can take. He has developed Nutrient Optimizer and Data-Driven Fasting to guide thousands of people on their journey towards nutritional optimization. So Marty can be found over at OptimizingNutrition.com, which we've linked in the show notes. And as I said, I've also linked that previous episode. I think you guys are really going to love it. So... Just a reminder though, the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show, like the one we're just about to listen to today, Marty Kendall. Um, Marty, how's things? Yeah, good, good. So excited to chat again, Mickey. 
Oh, I am stoked that you um, were happy to come on. First of all, so great because, of course, anyone who um, is a regular listener of the show will remember you were on in episode 120 and we talked about your work with nutrient-driven fasting, which um, is super fascinating, optimizing nutrition and and then, of course, we met in person, yeah. low carb Denver, like four o'clock in the gym. When we I was going to say jet lagged. <laughs> I know, and actually, time wise for you, it was still it was like so for me, it was uh, I think one a.m. New Zealand time yeah. or like twelve a.m. New Zealand time, and for you, it would have still been yesterday. Like, yeah, I was, it, my, it was my crazy. body was just confused, but I had so much energy from sitting on a plane for 24 hours and I needed to lift <laughs> <Yeah>. something heavy. <laughs> and actually that gym was remarkable. Gym. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like often they oversell hotel gyms if you look at the yeah. pictures because of course that's one of the first things I look at wherever I'm going to stay. Most places, I mean some places you just stay wherever but um, and uh, so it was just such a pleasant surprise that that the picture they had yep. actually was reality yep. it's not often the case yep. everything's bigger in America it's crazy I know <laughs> big, I know big gym big roads big airports yes totally so um, what's been happening since then Marty? Oh, yeah no just plugging away doing my um, my life has become data driven fasting and the macros masterclass and the micros masterclass and yes. using all that data and analyzing it. I'm just completely fascinated by yeah, data driven nutrition and um taking an engineering approach to it. And um yeah, just really thrilled you talked to Ted about satiety, just really thrilled that satiety as a concept is is picking up and a data-driven approach that I think can help a lot of people. So that's inspired me a whole lot more to dive back into the data even more and try to answer all the questions. I, I chat to Andreas occasionally and uh, see all the discussion on Twitter and it's like, oh, yeah, how can I answer those questions with the data? And that's been my my quest for a while. Here's all this controversy and uh, dogma. How can I use the data to cut through and answer things quantitatively and give another perspective? I love that because your talk at Low Carb Denver I found super fascinating, like focusing in on the micros. Because, of course, yeah. we often think about macros for satiety and we'll do a bit of a um, – it's, it's more nuanced, I think, than what you know even I was aware of. And you do such a great job to highlight where some of those um, – where some of the sort of assumptions we make where they might break. So mm. I'd love to mm. chat to you about mm. that. But particularly the micronutrients because it just – it's almost like that complete diet yeah. picture because yeah. we don't just eat macros we eat food yeah i'm trying to start a rumor that nutrition is about nutrients mickey so i don't know if you can get <laughs> on board with that it sounds bloody stupid to say maybe nutrition is primarily about nutrients but <laughs> yeah. it seems to be about everything else like you know avoiding bad things saturated fat cholesterol meat plants animals you know oh, you yeah. name it saturated fat polyunsaturated fat you know, everything's trying to kill you. Oh, man, so, there'd be nothing left to eat if you just followed <laughs> all of that, you know, everyone, you know, if you just listened to everything you heard, you'd, you'd be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what are the I was going to say fruitarian. That's not actually true. But the people who just sort of subsist on air, yeah. I don't know who those people breathitarian. are. Breathitarian. Breathitarian. But what about those toxins in the environment? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> It's all over. It's, it's all oxalates. over. It's, you know, pollution <laughs> like, in the air too. We're yeah. screwed, hey, Mickey. Yeah, I don't Marty, know. Marty, 
I, I don't know this about you, but did you sort of start with an evolutionary sort of um, lens to all wow. of this uh, nutrition great stuff? Question. Um, I remember Troy Stapleton saying, who's a, a radiologist, low carb type one guy who yes. was a mentor in the early days, um, said to me, uh, nothing makes sense in, outside the context of evolutionary biology. And I didn't quite understand that maybe eight years ago when he said that to me, but that makes a hell of a lot of sense now. A bit like Ted Naiman, I actually started in a Seventh-day Adventist upbringing until I was 10. We got out of the family, left the church at 10. So I started in a very much a, um, a creationist, you know, you know, vegetarian approach. But I suppose that's given me a, a unique perspective on dogma and what it's like to live inside a fishbowl and why we need to jump out and use data to understand and break through the dogma. So everybody sort of lives their own, own little fishbowl and when you can stand back and look at the big picture data, you can sort of break out of the, the dogma and um, understand the fishbowl that you live in a little bit better. Yeah, no, for sure. And I and I guess I remember, I think, knowing that about you because I've seen some stuff that you've written sort of in and around that, but I'd sort of forgotten that because your work with nutrients and micronutrients is just so sort of aligned with the... Paleo in a lot of ways. Yeah, 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 because it's sort of what the body wants, yeah. you know, and we don't really think about that and a lot of them aren't yeah. in the sort of modern-day food supply, but it doesn't mean that we can't have these other foods which you know which we now have so accessible and so available but it's just you know at what cost i guess mm, mm, yeah everything's on a spectrum of energy versus nutrients and really in the past energy was hard to come by from carbs and fat so it's really prized we get a massive dopamine hit from getting carbs or fat and you know if you get both together scored you're prepared for winter you're building fat win 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 and you just get this addictive dopamine overdrive response super physiological according to dana small from a really cool 2018 study you know but in the past that's how we're wired but today we just live in this environment where we've solved the energy crisis with you know use subsidies and technologies and you know fertilizers and industrial ag and you know, ultra processed food that just give us this bolus of instant refined energy from carbs and fat together and we're lacking nutrients in the past nutrients were really easy to get everything we could catch or kill or or pluck out of the ground was packed with nutrients and not much energy but today it's the opposite so we can just use modern technology and data to reverse that just a little bit to get the results we want yeah and i think that's what i really loved when i was just reading your stuff marty is you're fairly agnostic when it comes to and, and i know that we've talked about this before um when it comes to sort of um diet tribes or um and of course you just mentioned dogma you know there's <sighs> If I say there's no place for dogma, I mean there isn't. But of course, dogma is everywhere. Oh yeah, but, yeah. We're, you know, we, we like, can't escape our own dogma. We've all got oh, some God, bias. No. So, no, God no. But we can use data to break free of it a little bit. Yeah, and do you know some would argue, and I hear this a lot from nutritionists actually and dietitians, um, that nutrients aren't a problem because of fortification. And if you look at 
a lot of breakfast cereals, yeah. uh, uh, to, uh, milk replacements, what you know, substitutes, um, even orange juice. I mean, Milo. So you know, all of these foods. They're they're actually and Marty in New Zealand we have this um, this thing. Uh, we have a. A Life in New Zealand lab. I'm not sure if it's still running, but it's okay. down at Otago Uni. And um, they do a once a year, you know, how much it costs to meet your nutrient requirements if you have a basic diet or if you have a diet where you are able to, you, you can afford a bit more indulgent type food. And if you look at it ticking the nutrient box, it ticks everything, including iron, which I find amazing because, um, you know, 40% of women are sort of low in iron. Um, But, you know, it ticks all of these boxes. But if you go a little bit under the hood, you can see they include things like Milo in there because they don't have the quantity of animal protein sort of required, um, which is a bit of a tangent to my sort of, certainly back to my sort of question is that, you know, do we even know, and I don't even know if you will know this, do we know how available those nutrients are when we fortify? Like, have you ever yeah. looked at that? Um, I've got a question for you. Which yeah. food uses potassium fortification? <sighs> do you know anything? I actually don't. No. Because it hasn't, it's not on the radar, actually. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, um, and potassium keeps coming up as one of the things that is a dominant satiety factor in the statistical analysis, and it seems we crave foods that contain more potassium, calcium, iron, um, but not, you know, those B vitamins that are easily to throw into Milo or your breakfast cereals don't tend to pop up. So we tend to find, you know, you – crave the nutrients that are harder to get that aren't as fortified as much like potassium and calcium but also um, you can identify the the signature of satiating foods and they're not the fortified breakfast cereals that are chocked full of b vitamins that are healthy for you because they've got you know nutritious because we threw a lot of cheap teeny tiny b vitamins that we could advertise it on the label and they may actually make you you know, satisfied with that breakfast cereal, so you're less likely to go get meat and seafood that contains those B vitamins naturally. So it may not just be good for the label. It may be, you know, maybe it's good to get a bit more B vitamins if you've got a really crappy diet, but um, it might actually make you more satisfied to keep on chowing down the cocoa pops rather than the steak and seafood that you probably really need that actually contains those nutrients naturally. So, yeah, it's interesting to look at the data and see that we crave potassium and calcium in in a big way and they're the ones that aren't fortified as much and maybe iron on a very low protein diet. Yeah, and you know, like you, I like the way that you put that—the sort of the signature of a particular food. Because I think that if these are foods that we crave, and, and hey, you you have the data on this, but um, foods that do contain potassium naturally will also contain a lot of other things that we will probably need, right? So it's almost like this. Not so. It's part of a complete sort of uh, package that that we would naturally sort of need rather than that you're just going to find in a box of refined grains. Yeah. If you look at protein leverage, we seem to crave enough protein. And there seems to maybe be a a similar sort of nutrient leverage effect where we crave enough calcium and potassium and iron. But at the same time, it might just be 
you know how Facebook and Google and YouTube target, you look like someone who will buy this product, so we're going to advertise this product to you because you behave like somebody that will buy this product and give us money. This is a similar sort of approach to nutrition that we say this is the signature of food that provides the nutrients that aligns with a lower energy intake so we can reverse engineer nutrition to say this is a higher satiety diet approach for someone on a low carb diet or a low fat diet or even a, a low protein diet they all sort of have different signatures yeah okay and i have to say that um the relative success of that facebook ad campaign um uh campaigning for me to buy things leaves me hopeful for your approach actually if it's <laughs> if we can at I mean, all like <laughs> how much money is youtube making out of targeted advertising anyway, i know right facebook's yeah. a little bit more hindered lately uh, now you can opt out of you know every app yeah. tracks you but it's the same sort of yeah. data-driven approach and chat gpt uses big data to it's basically a big predictive text algorithm to understand what's the likely next word that will come after this word based on this yes. question it's, you know, everybody is winning the game these days is using big data and um nutrition research is still in the freaking dark ages comparatively well <laughs> totally you know, the, the data-driven companies are winning data data is the big new oil really it's where the the money is in finance and i think it is with nutrition that we can say let's cut through the dogma and yeah. what foods actually help us to win the game of not overeating which is i think i think is a big deal for a lot of people unfortunately these days I completely agree. And if we think about, I mean, because one thing that people tend to agree on is that the calorie itself is probably the toxin in the diet or the excess consumption of the calorie, yeah. right? Like, Yeah, we've talked a lot about insulin toxicity and hyperinsulinemia and insulin bad, but, you know, what's the root cause of that? It's energy toxicity. Insulin is just a, a regulator hormone in your body when you've got more energy stored yeah you need more insulin to hold that energy in storage and the root cause is energy toxicity and the root cause of energy toxicity is a nutrient poor low satiety diet and we can quantify that yeah for sure and then for someone to adhere to a diet they need you know we need to satisfy that appetite and that's one of the things that ted and i obviously spoke about like if you can have a diet that is satiating enough so you're not overeating calories and you're much more likely to be successful and successful in the long term yeah you can count calories and track calories and try to fight against your appetite and i'm going to eat half a pizza rather than a whole pizza today but you know three days later you're still going to be wow i'm so hungry and i'm going to eat two pizzas now because i'm just so damn hungry but if you can change what you eat you can manage how much you eat and you know we've got data to prove that protein is the dominant factor but you've got other factors energy density calcium potassium iron fiber vitamin c even folate on a low carb diet the sort of different nutrients that come together that um you know a satisfy our cravings and b come with other nutrients and c this sort of the signature of foods and meals that are more satiating okay for most so people most of the time yeah. So on that then, Marty, like I know that you've looked at both low carb and low fat and what these nutrients are that help people uh, feel more satisfied and more satiated, therefore more likely to sort of stick to them. Um, can we like, first of all, like, 
I'm really interested to know, why did you explore both? Is it just because of your your agnostic sort of approach to diet, you thought it would be more helpful for people? Or was this just the patterns that you were seeing people sort of adopting from your data? Or yeah, I mean, you know? the reality is that the majority of people follow a, a low-fat diet and, um, you know, you, you want to tailor it to suit people who consume a low-fat diet and not just use the factors that work for a low-carb diet, which was originally most of our data. And then I brought in, we had 150,000 days of data from people using Nutrient Optimizer, Logging and Chronometer. And then I dragged in 150,000 days of data from the NHANES US Nutritional Survey. So doubled it. And all of a sudden, I had all this data on you know, people eating a low-carb or a low-fat diet and really noticed that... Um, you know, protein isn't as big a deal for people on a low protein diet or even a low fat diet because they're just not getting as much protein. So protein leverage doesn't work as well if you're not eating as much protein. So if you're not actually using the lever, you can't get the lever. It's like you can't if you're not even eating fiber, you know, fiber's not going to be satiating because you're not eating any and similar sort of approach that if you're on a low fat diet and not eating as much protein, then protein isn't going to help you as much because you're just not eating as much. So it's like, what are the yeah. factors on a low-fat diet that can help people optimise their satiety as well? And there seems to be a break point um, with, you know, there's different factors. Um, people who eat a, a lower-carb diet eat 30% less, but people eat a lower-fat diet also eat about 30% less than people eating a a 12% protein with a perfect balance of fat and carb energy. So there's sort of a break point where jump either way and you have a different different satiety factors for each diet. Yeah. So Marty, how did you define low carb and low fat actually? Like, because of course there are lots of definitions out there in both the literature and you listen to different people that they may tell you similar or different things. But given that we want to know success in these approaches it would be good to sort of quantify that I think. yeah yeah it's just are you getting more of your energy non-protein yeah. energy from fat or carbs so okay it's just a simple clean and there seems to be a peak when people are getting a, a similar blend 50 50 energy from fat and carbs together we get a peak so if you go to either side of that if you lower fat or lower carbs you get greater satiety because you're just getting it out of that fat carb dopamine overdrive perfect you know evolutionary biology this is we're preparing for winter and we're going to go hyperphage you can eat as much as we can for as long as we can and all of a sudden i feel addicted to food is what a lot of people say these days a lot of people say oh this satiety approach doesn't work for me because i feel addicted to food and if you look at the low satiety foods they're the m&ms and doritos and yeah. ritz crackers and things that people feel addicted to so no one's addicted to you know spinach and chicken breast and steak yeah that's true that's true and so so if you were able to then go right so the lower carb so it's not necessarily you're not talking about like a ketogenic approach or a super low carb diet it's actually just if you're getting more of your energy from fat and protein then then that's a lower carb approach and lower than what you know the guidelines would probably sort of yeah. have you at. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but it's you can bicker over what's low carb, and but it's just are you getting more of your energy from fat or carbs? There's sort of different approaches that tend to work and different nutrients that tend to be more satiating. 
Yeah, I'm kind of interested, like with that in Haynes data, mm. um, did you have a look at how many people were actually, would actually sort of, you know, what percentage of that population fell into low carb versus the low fat? Like, yeah. is there a shift or? Def- definitely the people they interviewed were more high carb, lower fat and yeah. scarily low protein, a lot of them. A lot of them are well under the 10% minimum AMDR. Um, yeah. Acceptable macronutrient distribution range. Um, so yeah, that gave me a whole lot more data to understand what happens on a lower fat diet because a lot of my data from the optimizers who are prioritizing protein and tend to be lower carb. I yeah, really nice chunk of data from them too. Yeah, and Marty, you because you've written a couple of like a lot of great blog posts, obviously, but one I'm thinking of um, in particular when you and we'll we'll link it in the show notes as well. That basically, if you regardless of whether you're reducing fat or carbohydrate, um, generally speaking, if you hit that sort of satiety factor right, then they're going to be eating thirty percent less calories. Is that did I read that right? Yeah, yeah. If you swing from forty percent. Non-fiber carbs to ten to twenty percent non-fiber carbs, you get about a thirty percent reduction in intake just because you're jumping out of that fat carb dopamine overdrive zone. And similarly, if you're on a very high carb, low fat diet, you know, think of just eating rice or spinach or you know, sweet potato without any butter or oil. Those foods are going to be hard to overeat. But if you take your potato and add you know, a whole bunch of industrial seed oils, they become a potato chip and um, they're really easy to overeat. Mm, oh, yeah, totally. What about like salt? Like if I just put salt on my baked potato, am I going to – because I feel like that's that's going to drive a bit of my um, desire to eat the food. Like is that what you sort of see in your – Sort of, sort of. Like we definitely need sodium. Sodium's critical and it tastes better. Like sometimes – Sodium can nearly taste like sugar to me because, you know, it tastes good and you want to eat more of it. But if you eat too much of it, you get to a point where the food tastes too salty because you've, uh, you know, it's basically a uh, osmotic transfer when you don't have enough salt in your body. Your body sucks in the salt really quickly. But when you get too much, you've got a higher sodium concentration. Um, your body doesn't want more salt. You don't absorb more salt and your taste buds say, no, thank you, I've... Uh, had enough salt and that tastes too salty, thank you, and can we eat something else? So if you're getting not enough, things that are salty taste really attractive. Um, yeah, so up to about four, you know, we set our optimal nutrient intake for sodium at four grams per 2,000 calories, which is a lot less than the 1.5 that's in the USDA guidelines, which is based on hypertension guidelines. Everything else is based on the World Health Organization guidelines, but then they've picked the uh, you know hypertension guidelines for sodium, which is crazy. So the sodium guidelines seem to be a bit low in the USDA uh, food guidelines and everybody else that follows them. But um, yeah, you definitely crave some salt, but you get to a point where too much salt is not going to help you anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, when you just talked, then you said that you, your four grams was lower than the than the USDA. But what you oh, meant sorry, it was high, high, higher. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, got, yeah it's no. Got I, two, two and a yeah. bit times what. Yeah. Yeah. But for athletes, they're going to be sweating a lot and need even more and crave even more. But totally similar sort of way, you see a similar satiety response in the data for other nutrients as well. But 
the sodium is the one we think of and we can taste, but they seem to be the same effect to some degree in the other nutrients. Yeah. Now, Mandy, this is a bit of a tangent, actually, but I'm thinking about it when I think about salt. So there are these like um, competitions, like eating competitions, and I can't, and I think I was looking at, no, I wasn't looking at, I'm sorry, it's a lie. I was reading Rob Wolf's Wired yep. to Eat, yep. and he talks about this um, this ice cream eating competition where the person who was, you know, they were you know, how much ice cream can you eat in a certain amount of time or whatever. And then this person reached almost what you would think would be like complete like fullness. And then they ordered chips and they yeah. ordered like hot potato fries. Yeah. And um, and even though they were really full, they started eating them. And then that almost like flicked a switch for them to be able to um, eat more ice cream. Yeah. And, and that's where we... Like on a, on a normal, you know, not everybody's doing an eating competition, but at the same time, <laughs> we're eating, you know, uh, you know, fish and chips. We're eating steak and eggs or steak and potato. We always balance oh, our, you know, protein and energy again and again and again. And we and we're always sort of seem to be balancing our energy versus nutrients. So you know, that's an extreme example. If if you you know got eaten too many hot dogs, then you need the ice cream to clean your palate. And then something that resets that you can keep on eating the other foods. So yeah, there's that, or or we just have a dessert stomach, don't we? Well, yeah, that's a different <laughs> way of looking at it. If if you, yeah. you you love chicken breast and you can keep eating the chicken breast, but if somebody puts the ice cream in front of you, you're still going to be craving that. Yeah, that ice cream and have room for it. So the key is not to jump to really high satiety only foods all the time, but just nudge up the satiety score just a little bit. And I think that's what I really love about what you were writing. You were giving, you were sort of setting out and we'll talk, obviously we haven't really um, sort of dived into the details and I've almost like gone to the punchline, but. Follow the script, um, Mickey, you wrote the questions. No, I told you this wasn't a script. I said, this is, I said, these are bullet points, which I sort of like, which help me think about these things. But you know, Marty, I'm organic in nature. I like, I just, I just talk the things that come out of my mouth. That's okay. We're having fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but um, yeah. but essentially, like the the goal isn't to have the most. You know, I mean, uh, to have the nutrients that are going to give you the most satiety all of the time, because that's not necessary. It might not even be feasible. But it's to shift that satiety curve a little bit to the right, so you just. You're, you're able to then adhere to your diet of choice, be it low-carb or low-fat. Because let's face it, adherence is the most important sort of thing. Totally, totally. And um, jumping from a satiety score of zero to 100 aligns with like a 70% drop of car, uh, calories. So it, yes. you know, who wants to live on a 70% cut for very long? You, that's brutal. So let's go from maybe the average American sitting at 30%. They can nudge it up to... To fifty percent and get a twenty percent reduction in calories, or you know, if that's working for you, you can go from fifty to fifty-five next week and just nudge it up. And that's where I think a lot of these indexes fail. And when people, you know, talk about low carb or carnivore or low fat or high satiety, higher satiety. I mean, Ted and Andreas have been talking about higher satiety, not high satiety, to try and get people away from that extremist edge but everybody wants to go to the extreme they say oh, i ate chicken and sp chicken breast and spinach only and i was hungry and i was like yeah because you just 
need a bit more energy. But if you just yeah. bunched it up incrementally at a sustainable yeah. rate that you're achieving half to 1% weight loss per week, you'd find that sustainable and you wouldn't break, you wouldn't fall off, you wouldn't be craving the, the ice cream and the chips and the pizza to the, the same degree and you could sustain it for the long term. Mm, yeah, but 0.5%, like, it's a bit, bit slow really, isn't it? Is what people are thinking, not what I'm thinking, because yeah, I totally agree with you. But people are always in a rush. People want the three percent weight loss, and that's oh, totally like the hardcore protein spring modified fast, which you're all about. But yeah, you know, if you live on a protein spring modified fast, yes, it's the most aggressive, most effective way to lose weight. But most people regain that because they didn't learn to eat normally. They didn't relearn. Yeah. They didn't form new habits on the way down. They just jumped off the mountain, hit the bottom, and then went, oh, I'm so hungry. You know, I've been living on shakes and, you know, protein powder and only, and, wow, well, I can I can eat chips and pizza now. All bits are off. It's like you just took Wegovy for a year and, uh, you know, ate donuts, and then you've got this massive nutrient deficiency that your body's trying to compensate for when the insurance money runs out. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I I like that. Um, So if we get back to the nutrients on the low-carb diet that people are sort of – that you recognize as important to try and include, and, of course, we'll talk about what food choices, um, there's potassium as one. Yeah. Yeah, um, protein's the dominant one for low-carb diet. So if you're getting plenty of protein, that's more than half the satiety factors. But then you've got um, calcium, potassium – folate and sodium is also a positive factor because a lot of people struggle to get enough sodium when they cut out processed foods so you're going to be a little bit more satiated with enough sodium but potassium and folate the sort of the non-starchy green veggies that complement the meat and seafood so you get a more complementary balanced micronutrient profile that aligns with eating less yeah so so what are those foods then you said dark leafy greens yeah, um, dark leafy, leafy greens, um, and then the meat and seafood will be, uh, you know, yeah. meat and seafood. So with yeah. a lower fat, which drives a higher protein percentage. Okay, cool. But I'm talking about a low-carb approach here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So if you're getting most of your – so you're getting – 70% fat, let's prioritise protein and dial back the energy from yes. 70 to 60% fat while your carbs might be 10 to 20%. So it's not a, a low-fat diet, it's just a little bit lower because yeah. you're already lowering energy from carbs. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that just gives people a little bit more, feels wiggle room actually when you sort of do it like that. Yeah, and it's just dialing back. You can dial back carbs or fat or carbs and fat and you get yeah. the same response. Yeah. Now, you mentioned industrial seed oils. Yep. Do, are they going to drive our hunger more, do you think, than just sort of natural sources of fat? What do you know about that, actually? Mm-hmm. Do we know? The fat in our diet over the last 100 years has gone up by 800 calories per person, or the availability yeah. of fat in the American food system has gone up massively since we learned to um, use synthetic fertilizers to grow seed crops that we could hydrogenate and process and make really cheap oils you know they were a lubricant and useless until they realized we could use them in food and color and flavor them so they look like butter and we call it margarine or crisco or whatever um i i don't i'm sort of with ted Naiman on the idea that i don't think there's any magical thing about 
about them that makes them inherently evil, particularly poofers. They're just a very small proportion of our diet. And to get down to 2% that some people advocate by eliminating all nuts and pork and, you know, non-grass-fed beef, and it's really hard to get to that really, really low level. Um, but I think where you get into trouble definitely is where you're combining industrial seed oils with refined starch and sugar all together, particularly it's the refined starch and the seed oils, monounsaturated fat, particularly together that's the signature of ultra-processed foods that we can't stop eating. So if you're managing your overall fat intake and not eating industrial seed oils, particularly combined with refined flour, you're going to be in a pretty good place and it's going to be hard to overeat those things and you'll have your omega-6 and omega, you know, and monounsaturated fat in check. Yeah, and, you know, that's what I think as well, that we talked earlier about sort of a signature, like uh, signature of what sort of in food, and that's what I see industrial seed oils sort of being, or that really high omega-6 intake. Mm. Like if you're getting those industrial seed oils, then you're getting them from the processed food. Yep. And, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's so reductionist even though we are actually talking quite reductionist about you know nutrients which which are you know may uh, which uh, impact satiety but to, to look at sort of zone in on just one thing when you sort of ignore these other features which yeah. we know drives overeating just it does seem a little bit um, short so I don't know I'm, I'm not sure why that's not part of the conversation I guess when it comes yeah, to yeah I those totally agree um, I mean if you decide you're allergic to omega-6 fats you'll be avoiding every bit of processed food so it'll work like magic because you'll never touch anything packaged or processed because they've all got added canola or rapeseed oil or you know whatever oils that are added to starch and sugar and even sugar you know a lot of people are afraid of sugar and they're addicted to sugar and whatever but you know similar to that peak in carbs that's at 40%, we get a peak in intake at 20% sugar. But if you're eating a diet that's 40% sugar without any fat, it's probably going to be you know mainly fruit. Those things are hard to overeat. So if you're living on a diet that's um, a large you know, 40% sugar, you're going to be eating a veggies and fruit that are hard to overeat so it's not necessarily the individual nutrient that's evil it's when you combine sugar starch saturated fat monounsaturated fat omega-6 oil together in a form that's never ever occurs in nature it only yeah. occurs in ultra processed foods so once you identify that combination signature you can then avoid those yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And what about for a low fat diet then? And I have to say, like when it comes, like I was very much in the low carb, healthy fat, high fat camp probably seven years ago. Um, and and I, I have changed that actually, Marty, over time, just working with people, just in that um, I'm certainly lower carb. I mean, that hasn't really changed. Inappropriate carbohydrate for, for activity, but I'm not as much of a fan of the higher fat approach for most people in real life because most people have they've got excess body fat that they need to lose themselves. And I remember reading in Volokh and Finney's um, Bible, The Art and Science of Low-Carb Living, how they actually say, it's right at the back, 
You know, like if you're struggling to lose weight on a ketogenic diet, you could actually just be overeating that fat. So the idea isn't to layer on all these, low, um, you know, the cream and the cheese and the the oils. It's actually to encourage your body to utilize that as an energy source. So, so you know, naturally, and maybe this is my 80s diet background as well. So maybe it sort of precedes this, but I'm probably more in that low carb, low fat camp, but without the, yeah, yeah, and high protein, obviously. Yeah, totally, totally. And same here, as much as I've written a book called Big Fat Keto Lies, I live with <laughs> type 1 diabetics and we tend to eat a lower carb, higher protein, you know, with as many yeah. veggies as we can throw in sort of diet. Um, but yeah, on a low fat approach, um, protein has a smaller impact, energy density has a bigger impact. And then you've got calcium, potassium, iron, vitamin C, sodium as well tend to have sort of nutrient cravings. And um, yeah. So that vitamin C, that's different, isn't it? Because that yeah. wouldn't really feature as much in the low-carb diet. Yeah, calcium and potassium and iron are all identified in the USDA food guidelines as nutrients of concern that the average yeah. American's not getting enough. And then when you're, you know, vitamin C was the first micronutrient that was discovered when all the sailors got scurvy and you read um you know the chaplain at the time recounted the stories of the sailors jumping off the ship and indulging with luxurious indulgence in these you know moss and fruits and anything they could find that was a contained the vitamin c so yeah obviously when you get deficient enough um you potentially crave maybe any nutrient. It seems that vitamin C on a diet that is, uh, you know, who's eating fruit and veggies these days, it doesn't seem many people are. And it seems the average American who shows up in the NHANES data is uh, potentially craving vitamin C to some degree in addition to calcium and potassium. I actually think I saw something a year or so ago, maybe longer because time seems to fly, that actually said that there were in real life there are cases of scurvy, mm. actually, um, which is like, I mean, I'm a massive vegetable fan, like, mm. so, and and fruit, and I enjoy fruit as well, but I, you know, I tend to eat more veggies than, than anything else. And so vitamin C was never sort of an issue for me. But yeah, actually, when I talk to a lot of clients, a lot of, you know, some of them really struggle to get in, or they just don't prioritize the vegetables in their in their low-carb diet or their low-fat diet, actually, which yeah, I find yeah. super interesting. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Marty, what types of food – are the food choices then going to be that different if we're thinking about, you know, optimising satiety on a low-carb approach versus a low-fat approach? Because a lot of those nutrients were the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's definitely some overlap with protein, calcium, potassium, and yeah. then, you know, but lower-carb foods are the – non-starchy veggies and uh, sorry lower fat foods are the non-starchy green leafy veggies um onions potato peppers those sorts of things on a lower fat diet along with maybe fruit and then on a lower carb diet you've got the meat seafood and um lower fat dairy if you're trying to lose body fat yeah yeah i'm a fan of low fat dairy it's like one of my favorite foods yeah, yeah. are you are you a fan? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm all over the um, the higher protein yogurt with some yes. tasty protein powder mixed in for a quick breakfast snack. And that's that's pretty much my go to. So that's how yeah. I start the day. Just smashes hunger for a lot of the day. Well, and, and in, um, in Australia, you guys have some great yogurts, actually. Mm. You guys have a much better 
Oh, really? range than what we do here in New Zealand. Oh, I, I love New Zealand food. I thought it would just taste it all. You know, you could drive around the South Island and see these happy sheep and cows on green pastures. <laughs> and the food was just off the chart because it's also natural and minimally processed, at least on South Island. Oh, well, amazing. I'm glad you have that um, perception and I'm not going to disabuse you of that. <laughs> so you keep, keep, yeah, yeah, keep, keep that in, the, uh, in, in your sort of thought. Yeah, it's crazy. We, we went to Vanuatu and they've got the best tasting food in the world, but it gets shipped yeah. to China <gasps> and then they get all the, all the local new Vanuatans go, you know, we're going to eat this white man food that's the processed junk and you go into their, their stores and they're lined with Oreo cookies and seed oils and they are literally addicted to those Oreos. They just, you know, they're, they're lining every road, the, the empty packets. They take their food that they grow and then make a bit of money at the market and buy vegetable oil and uh, Oreo cookies. Uh, it's just diabolical. They just blow up. Oh, and uh, I don't, you all know Professor Grant Schofield. He talked about his experience in Kiribati, which was very similar, actually, mm. to that. It's uh, is that it's just a sort of the result of an industrial sort of world, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's criminal. Yeah, totally. So, Marty, can you talk to me about the protein leverage theory and when that breaks? Because you did already mention mention that but I did come across something that you wrote that talked about um, a low well maybe yes when it breaks can you just remind me of sort of what's going on there but also you know like you mentioned low protein diets is there ever a reason to have a low protein diet mm. like I'm really interested to sort of understand more your thoughts around that uh, short answer is no, but there's definitely an observation that when people eat a very, very low protein diet, they eat less than the 12% protein, which seems to be optimal to eat more and store more on your body. It seems to be optimally efficient to build fat and um, you know, store energy on about 12%. So if you get down to 7%, which is you know, extreme therapeutic keto or fruitarian or whole food plant-based diet, those people tend to eat less. A lot of people talk about the longevity benefits of a diet that avoids protein. I'm pretty sceptical there because what do we die of? We're not um, laboratory mice in cages with no infections or cold, miserable, depressed sea elegance worms in a petri dish in a lab yes. where we're robust outdoors uh, humans who get infections and die of broken hips that put us in hospital and we get an infection in hospital and then we get on 18 medications that we get suddenly prescribed and die of the complications, you know, 30% chance of death within a year if you break your hip. So being robust um, seems to be really important when we're older. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with eating lower protein, low energy density foods if you've already got your protein in for the day and your nutrients in for the day. But those lower protein, lower energy density foods aren't as nutritious as the the lower carb protein focused um, you know, meat, seafood and veggies. Yeah, and I guess the only the people that might have a lower percentage of protein in their diet yet still meet protein requirements would be those with very um, high calorie requirements, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the super active people yeah. where actually they don't need to do a lot to get in those nutrients they need because they're eating such a volume of food, which sort of describes um, 
elite athletes, really, you know, like the swimmers, the NFL players, rugby players who don't sort of think about body composition and things like that. Not, I'm not suggesting they all have rubbish diets, but you certainly hear of these athletes. Michael Phelps pounding 8,000 calories a day to survive the, the thermal you know, and activity that he needs to put out. You just can't do that on a whole food diet. Like it's no, no. nigh on impossible. The, the digestive district, like it, it would be physically impossible to do that, right? Uh, if you're an Ironman triathlete, you know, the average couch potato who's not active needs a higher satiety diet yeah. and more nutrients, yeah. more nutrients per calorie. But the average Ironman triathlete who's working out for 50 hours a week training um, is going to need a, need a lower satiety diet um, and with you know a lower nutrient density because they're getting a lot more energy in so they can get the nutrients they need because they're consuming a lot more calories. But you know people who are less active need less energy and therefore need to work out a way to pack in all the nutrients they need with less energy. Yeah, for sure. And um, that I find that 12% um, number super interesting. And because that's essentially it's like a protein dilute diet, right? Like this is what we're talking about. This is the modern diet. Like if you were just to, to eat the, you know, if you didn't really think about nutrition, you just sort of ate foods, you know, wheat bix and toast, sandwiches, maybe pasta, maybe some peas and carrots or whatever, probably coming in at about that 12%. Yeah, the average American is 15.4 based on the NHANES data analysis. So, yeah, 12% is pretty close. Yeah. And actually, you know, I remember looking at um, the data for New Zealand and a colleague, Jamie Scott, pointed this out that in New Zealand, so we have um, the last time we did a national survey was 2008-2009. So I suspect, if anything, it's going to be a bit lower. But the average protein intake was about that 16%, but when you took out bread-based dishes from the analysis, the actual protein was about 10%. So of quality protein, we'll be getting 10% of our calories from protein. And I, I imagine Australia isn't that different, actually. Yeah, yeah Australia's about 16% as well. Yeah, yeah. But like you said, the protein that comes with grains is bound with fibre and harder to access. So if you're on a getting most of your protein from plant-based sources, you need more protein. Yeah, for sure. And then, Marty, what is the, like when you were looking at your data, what was the, um, so generally speaking, people who followed either a low-carb or a low-fat that had these higher satiety foods ate sort of 30% less calories than those people who didn't really focus on these, on on the protein, on the calcium, iron, potassium, things like that? Yeah, um, that, that's when you just look at carbohydrate. Yeah. But um, when you look at, if you move from zero satiety index score to a, a satiety index score of 100, it's a 70% drop in calories so it's very extreme yes. you move from one extreme to another but let's say most people are at 30 percent just nudging up a little bit will help you yeah okay how does your satiety index differ from satiety per calorie uh it's still a focus on satiety per calorie but um ted and andreas diet dr Hava, um you know <laughs> Ted and I have been on a very similar journey for quite a while from SDA upbringings, not that we knew each other back then, yeah. both engineers and both gone through a lot of the same mistakes and um, diet fads of paleo, low-carb, keto. and Did you do carnivore? Were you carnivore? Tic-tacking for a while. I've never been a – I eat plenty of – I'm not 
anti-meat at all. No, no, no. I enjoy my steak and protein, but I'd never go exclusively carnivore. Uh, but, you know, Ted and Andreas are big on the RCT trials and uh, you know, they want a robust study to validate everything that goes into the satiety index. And me, I'm just like, give me all the data and I'll, I'll analyze that to find out what's most effective. And the good thing is both approaches come out at a similar sort of outcome that aligns and confirms the approaches. So yeah, I've brought in all diet doctors' satiety scores and they align fairly closely with mine. So it's good for both of us to you know cross-validate with different approaches. I agree because a randomized controlled trial is it I mean it's I mean the very term obviously indicates that everything is sort of clinical and controlled which isn't real life right and I guess it's you know you're studying mechanisms in an RCT what happens when you change this one thing um, if that's sort of the thing that you're thinking of and then but then in real life there are just so many factors which influence what we do that they're good to sort of inform, I mean, they're good to sort of make a statement about something, but it's that real life data, which is what you've got access to and what you work mm. with, mm. that then can sort of, I don't know, I, I feel like that's that's just as valid as an RCT. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was referring to Silicon Valley, whose philosophy is move fast and break things and that's sort of my approach is give me all the data <laughs> yeah. and I'll make up something that generates a hypothesis and if um, you can't wait for Kevin Hall to run the randomised controlled trial with a high satiety index nutrient dense diet to you know have that RCT um, you know if you can't wait for that we've got the data and analysis now to tell you what foods and meals will help you do that. Like we've got 832 person years of data. Can you imagine what that would cost for Kevin Hall to do in his little laboratory hospital? It'd be exorbitantly expensive to collect that much data to get the level of statistical significance that we can get from 300,000 days of data from thousands and thousands of people living at a wide range of uh, protein and carb and fat intakes. So Kevin seems to end up you know, going, we're going to feed everybody 15% protein. It's like, well, you know, that's not enough protein to actually see the, the protein leverage effect. And, um, you know, yeah. And I like this data because it, it automatically eliminates ultra-processed food, which is you know, ultra-processed food has got that signature of low nutrient density and a combination of energy from starch and monounsaturated fat together so you're automatically avoiding ultra processed food and you don't have to do the ANOVA calculations and say how many ingredients has this got and was it designed for profit it's just like yeah here's the data here's the nutrient information it does the calculations for you is it mono it's muddy isn't it poly no um mono is just the biggest contributor to our energy is it poly is just a small um five percent of energy so because when i so what is the mono that's used in processed food uh most industrial seed oil has a dominant energy from from mono yeah because i thought soybean and canola were largely it's soybean and vegetable i mean vegetable oil i mean what the heck is that anyway but you know like <laughs> like you know like it's just some yeah. Um, yeah but is it is it but mono is the one that pops up as statistically significantly yes. correlated with eating more. And yeah. Uh, yeah, saturated definitely contributes to eating more. But if you're getting protein, 
then that's going to come with some saturated yeah, fats. Sure. That drops off and it's mono that's the thing that, as much as everybody sells it, says it's the magic heart-healthy seed oil that you can eat in infinite quantities if it's combined with starch and sugar with flavorings and colorings. It's also called ultra-processed food. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, not so good for you. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Because, of course, it's the well, it's more than just the oleic acid in olive oil that's that's sort of related to heart health and stuff, isn't it? But that's yeah. but I don't think that we're talking about extra virgin olive oil here because that's certainly not what's put in ultra-processed food. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, it's just crazy. Like the the plant based vegans will tell you that monounsaturated fat is magic, and um, you know, and poly's great too, and saturated's evil. And if then at the other extreme, you've got the carnivore community telling you that you know poly is evil, which is contained in industrial seed oils. So they're just sort of shooting across the chasm, um, uh, having a having this war about the oils that come with the opposition's favourite foods. And it just seems crazy. It seems like a crazy argument to me when if you're managing the the balance of nutrients and energy and not overdoing the fat, it all become irrelevant. Yeah. And this is the thing, like you're, I mean, you've highlighted which nutrients are going to be most beneficial from a satiety perspective, regardless of those two dietary approaches. Um it doesn't seem overly complicated. You know, you're not like telling us to go out and and seek out these sort of unicorn type foods, right? So how many people are actually doing this? Like when you I, look at the data. I, I was going to say I'm not telling you to go out and sun your privates, but that was a bit of a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I've seen I've seen people talk about things like that. Isn't that the new thing? Oh, I'm not sure because I haven't engaged. Not, I've sort of just I'm averted not, my eyes and just moved on to the next Twitter I'm, argument. I'm not. I'm not optimally health. Um, <laughs> sorry, what was the question? I, I lost my train of thought. So, how, so, so when you were analysing your data, then, and you you know that these these nutrients are important for satiety, like, is it? It doesn't feel like it should be that hard to get. Is that what you your sort of data showed you that actually the majority of people who um, you would categorise as low carb or low fat, like they were they were pretty much meeting what you would suggest. Uh, it, it, yeah, A, it's not magical. Um, B, I don't know, you talked in your excellent 20-minute rant on protein that we're all sort of aiming for lower in protein. And I think, you know, everybody wants to tell you that you don't need that much protein because these foods are really profitable. Mm. You know, the, the, the lower protein diet is really, you know, hyper profitable, hyper palatable. And in a similar way, we're recommending, you know, we're even reducing, we're trying to reduce the targets for how much vitamins and minerals we need. So it's easy to sell these ultra-processed foods that are apparently good for the environment in some magical way. But really, when you get more nutrients per calorie, uh, you know, more is often better. And if you've got a balance of all of them, that are, you know, our optimal nutrient intake targets are two or three or four times the minimum to prevent disease of deficiency. So if you're, um, you know, and definitely if you're staying out of that carb plus fat hyperpalatable zone, you're doing a lot better. But once you get out of that, once you're not eating ultra processed, once you're not eating ultra processed food, you can improve by then dialing in your micronutrients even more. And when people chase their priority nutrients that you can quantify for yourself if you track your food, um, you get even better results. Yeah, 
Yeah, awesome. And what do you think, though, Martin? And you've, I know you, you've, you've got an index yourself, the satiety index uh, yep. sort of score. <laughs> then there's the satiety, the satiety per calorie. And in fact, on Twitter last night, I saw Kevin Hall put up something that suggested that um, well, there was a paper just released that that showed that you could you could consume a diet that was maybe 60% ultra processed food and yet still meet the healthy eating index, which is another. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think it was 80%. You can oh, 80%. A diet 80% yes. ultra processed food. And, it's, and look, there are ultra processed foods which are not, they're not terrible for you. You know, there is there are different categories of ultra processed food, but it's just most people are eating the types of ultra processed food which do a disservice rather than that would actually, you know, help with yeah. sort of nutrition. Um, the healthy index is healthy, healthy eating index is crap. Terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, like it prioritizes, it says let's prioritize monounsaturated fat and avoid saturated fat. So it's really skewed to that. The protein targets are incredibly low. And then you've got to get a whole lot of whole grains. And by that time you filled your plate with a loaf of bread each day, you don't have much room for the meat and seafood and non-starchy veggies that actually give you the nutrients you need. So yeah, I I think it's no surprise that the healthy eating index, you can create a good um, score. Get a, get a good mm. score with ultra processed foods because I think it's actually nearly designed by, you know, Adventists and um, the ultra processed food industry. You mean and, Kellogg's? And, sanitarium? Oh, yeah, Sanitarium, Seventh Adventist have yeah. a large yeah. part in a belief based dietary approach that avoids animal based foods and prioritizes plant based foods. Um, so you're automatically like if you're avoiding saturated fat and cholesterol and prioritizing um, unsaturated fat and trying to get your healthy whole grains, you've automatically avoided most animal based foods and minimizing animal based foods, which are quite nutritious. Yeah, it just it so surprises me, Marty, that there are legitimate experts out there that do believe that this that that something like the healthy eating index or the compass the food compass score or whatever are legitimate ways markers or you know if you optimize these then it's a good marker for a good diet like I don't know like is it is it just a gender and money and well do you know what I sort of liken it a little bit to multi-level marketing so the people that are out there selling airborne and isogenics and stuff like they've bought into this belief system basically so it's actually it's not the individual's fault because they truly believe they're doing you a service when they're trying to sell you their shakes I sort of feel that way about these these indexes here like they must they've, it's somewhere along the way they've just completely bought into it it's not that they've, they're not intentionally trying to overfeed us and and create issues but yeah I don't know. What are your thoughts anyway? That's oh, a bit- wow. That, that's a whole new rabbit hole. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> and not and totally off script as well. Yeah, keep, you didn't. I didn't prepare. For, um, but uh, <laughs> no, I, to, to be honest, I think where did nutrition science come from? It was Kellogg's and the SDAs and um, Lena Francis Cooper who started the American Dietitians Association, who were trying to research to prove the. Um, beliefs and visions of Ellen G. White, and that's where nutrition started. So that's the 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 bubble, the fishbowl that nutrition science started. And it's hard to escape that belief system that emphasises minimising animal flesh because it leads to you know insert 
if you listen to Belinda Fetke rant and rave, yes. everything she says is fantastic and oh. spot on and agrees with my experience and upbringing. So, yeah, nutrition science is rooted in belief and profiteering and come together. So I think there's, you know, maybe some differential benefits of unsaturated fat versus saturated fat. and But if you prioritise getting the nutrients you need from food, you're not going to be obese and have metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and all those disappear. So it gets really murky when you focus on your balance of saturated versus unsaturated fat and yeah, it just you just go down a massive rabbit hole that is largely irrelevant in my book if you're prioritising getting the nutrients you need from food that provide greater satiety. Yeah, because because essentially if you do that, then you it's a wash, well, not a wash, but it's 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 irrelevant because naturally you're not going to be over consuming these other things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Hey, this is completely off script as well, but I'm so keen to know. Have you looked at Mediterranean diet, Marty, in all of your like everyone uh, talks about Mediterranean as yeah. the diet and, and I think there are some healthful prop um, of course there are healthful properties of the diet, you know, vegetables, olive oil. I am a fan of olive oil and oleic acid actually. Um cool. and uh in small amounts of well, I'm not a fan of small amounts of meat, but whatever. Um have you have you looked into it at all? Or is that a project mm. for the future? I don't know. I heard Stephen Guignet say that a Mediterranean diet is sort of optimised for uh, heart health based on the omega, uh, you know, mono versus an omega six versus saturated fat. Um, not necessarily for weight loss and satiety. Um, yeah. I think if you're eating whole food fish and veggies and with a bit of olive oil, you're going to be perfectly fine and mm. probably thriving. And um, yeah, it they all avoid the ultra-processed fat and carb combo, yes. they're whole food, and these people have great community and walk in the sun and uh, live a long, happy life that's low stress. So I don't think there's anything magical about the Mediterranean diet or the, you know, that the, the, you can't differentiate from getting the nutrients you need without excess energy. Olive oil is great if you need the energy and uh, you're doing, you're active, but if you've got a whole lot of, stored body fat that you want to get rid of adding more olive oil or any oil or any fat or even any carbs is not going to help you yeah no that's a very good point um lastly marty your data-driven fasting so oh, yeah. i know we touched on this last time and this isn't in my script either but i'm just keen any any further insights into that that you can sort of update us on or it's great um yeah i'm, I'm just fascinated that we end up uh, uh, sort of designed it to help people with type 2 diabetes and uh, weight loss, but it seems to have attracted all these menopausal women that have tried fasting and keto and everything and, um, you know, seem to be growing this massive community of middle-aged women that say, this is the only thing that works for me and it's magical. Cause, oh, amazing. You know, so that's really encouraging. So it continues to grow and get great results every round and about to start round 24 and um yeah it just really helps people using glucose as a fuel gauge and i think um you know the future we can combine ai with your cgm data and your satiety and what you've eaten to design a diet that sort of is optimized based on your current blood sugars and how you slept and all all those sorts of things but i think yeah quantifying Nutrition and tailoring what you eat based on your blood sugars is, is really powerful. And that, the, you know, you can make better choices based on your blood sugars at the time that yeah. align with your hunger and 
just getting in touch with your true hunger signals is really powerful. I think I'm probably going to have to ask to speak to you at another point, Marty. We actually do a really deep dive into that because I just find that so fascinating, you know, like if that's cool because so many people um, say that fasting is not good for, Mm. you know, women and yet your experience and your thousands of data points would suggest that that's not the case, but maybe it's the way that it's been, the way they're doing it is misguided. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's the more is better approach of, you know, fast for two weeks or one meal a day or some extreme approach using a glucose as a fuel gauge just says it validates your hunger. It's yes, I need to eat now. So it's a sort of a a confirmation that yes, I need to eat two or three meals a day when my body needs the fuel and this is the fuel it needs. If your blood sugar is higher, you don't need as much energy from carbs, particularly if your blood sugar is really low, then time to eat some carbs to boost it up quickly because your blood sugar is low. So it just times what you eat to exactly when you need it. And if you're chasing a lower blood sugar before you eat, you're, you're draining your stored body fat and stored glucose. Awesome. Okay, well, well, let's um, book that let's in. Let's do it again. Yes, fun. yes. <laughs> so, Marty, like I always love chatting to you. Like I really enjoyed your company at Low Carb Denver because it's so easy just to nerd out on all of these things. But, you know, I'm hoping that what people sort of take away from this is that it doesn't matter whether it's low carb or low fat. It's actually chasing a nutrient-dense diet is going mm. to overall support better body composition, better adherence to whatever plan you sort of use. And a large part of that is, of course, making sure you're not diluting the protein and protein mm. as well. Definitely spread the, the the rumor that nutrition is about nutrients. Just, <laughs> yes, know. nutrition is about nutrients. I love crazy, it. Crazy, crazy, crazy engineers. No, I love it. And, of course, we talked all about your background in the first episode uh, that I did with you, which was number 120. Where can people uh, find out more, Marty? Yeah, um, Google Optimising Nutrition on Marty Kendall. We've got a blog. Um, I've been spending way too much time on Twitter, which has been a bit too much fun um, lately. And we've got a community of about 8,000 people in our Optimising Nutrition Mighty Networks community where I've been loading up all these um, simple three-by-four slides of pretty pictures to show this is high-satiety foods, these are low-satiety foods, and here's a list if you want to download it. So if you jump into that and get a whole ton of free stuff, I just want people want to see people get the ball rolling with this approach because it really works. We've been doing it for five years with a macros and micros masterclass, and it definitely works. It's not a fad, and um, yeah, just hope it can help more people. Amazing, Marty. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Mickey. So much fun. All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. Look, we're both nerds and love it. So, And I just think you must be a nerd too if you uh, engage in this podcast. So I reckon that that was just a real treat. So I'm so stoked that Marty was happy enough to come on again and chat to me. Next week on the podcast, I have a chat with plant-based physiotherapist and holistic expert and coach, Brad Dixon. Um, Such a great conversation. That is next week on the podcast. Till then though, you can catch me over on Instagram, threads and Twitter at Mickey Willardin. 
Facebook at Mickey Bulletin Nutrition or head to my website mickeybulletin.com to book a one-on-one call with me. All right, team, you have a great week.